Hello and welcome to the Oz Investing Podcast, the podcast for the everyday investor. Just a quick note before we begin today's podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be considered as personal financial advice. If you're ever in doubt about your financial situation, please reach out to a qualified financial advisor. With all that said and done, let's get into today's episode. This is part B of episode 9, interview with Dev Raga from the Dev Raga Personal Finance Podcast. So I think we had a really good conversations in terms of the super and, you know, super related queries. Now, I think let's move on to the, the next segment, which I would say is more or less on investing. And uh, Dev, you, you know, based on investing and where the market's going right now, and, you know, there's a lot of noise around the market, usually tends to happen with the share and share market. You know, people are talking about the, you know, index or the passive bubble. What are your thoughts on the same? Yeah, look, I've, I have heard about this and I think there's that famous guy who made a lot of money out of the GFC, Michael Burry, I think his name is. And yep. uh, he was a main character in a movie, I think. Uh, I, I forget the name of the movie. Which movie was he the main character? Of? The Biggest Short? The Big Shot, yeah, The Big, big Shot. Big Shot, yeah, right, that's yeah. it. I think it was played by Christian Bale or something like that. I mean, he keeps saying that, you know, he's he's identified a bubble in uh, passive, passive index investing. Look, I'm, I'm not a financial guru. I, I'm just a... I'm just a mere doctor, just you know, just trying to just trying to make some money on the side by just keeping things very simple. But I've looked at it, you know, from a systematic point of view with the limited knowledge that I have. I think his point is that if everyone just follows the herd, then there's no price discovery. Basically, what he's saying is that you know money just keeps flowing into the index, and people are not really paying attention to what's actually in the index. And just like people weren't paying attention, like when I say people, I'm talking about banks, weren't paying attention as to the quality of the incomes and the professions uh, of the people that sought loans. So banks just kept lending money out to people and then lo and behold, lent money out to a number of people that couldn't afford those loans. And, and of course, everything crashed. And you can use that sort of analogy for index. People just put money into the index because that's a good thing to do. That's the best thing to do. And what's actually in the index. So I can see where that sort of speculation and that sort of concern comes from. But what I think is reality is that you only need, you know, a little bit of active investing for price discovery to happen. If you had 100% of the entire stock market investing in passive index funds, I can see a little bit of concern there, okay, that that's not really healthy. I don't think realistically we would ever achieve 100%. Because we're all humans and humans mentality is, I think I know a little bit more than you, which ironically is going to save us because, you know, the smart people would think that they would know more than the so-called dumb people. So I'd be one of those dumb people where uh, the smart person might be an investment banker. And when you have those type of sort of mentality and thinking, then active investing will still continue moving on to the future. But One of the things that I do get worried about, though, about passive investing is there is a lot of junk ETFs and index funds out there that purport to be very passive. You know, if you if you have an ETF that's just gold mining companies or if you have an ETF that's just, you know, buy now, pay later tech companies. Yeah, that's a disaster waiting to happen. Right. I mean, uh, you know, we're not talking about broadly diversified index funds or ETFs across a wide spectrum of markets. We're talking about a very niche ETF. And frankly, in my view, that's not really passive investing. Passive investing is much more broader than that. And I guess the analogy there is 
if you just keep eating McDonald's all your life, then don't be surprised that one day you might have a stroke or a heart attack. You know, you know, as doctors, we recommend a broadly diversified appetite, broadly diversified diet and broadly diversified exercise program. Again, I, I try and use the, the medical analogies to, to finances is, is spot on. I mean, everywhere you look in medicine and you look at finances, uh, the behaviours are exactly the same. But let's just assume, Sam and Drew, just, just for a comparison, Let's just assume mm. that there is a bit of a passive indexing bubble, right? I mean, he, he talks about, okay, everyone's going to sell at the same time and the whole world's going to collapse. Let's just assume that. Now, if you're investing in a broadly diversified ETF, let's say S&P 500 that has the top 500 companies in the US, and you know the, the fundamental characteristics of a good blossoming economy is that it's got to be a democracy. It's got to be based on capitalism with a little bit of social safety net, which Australia has, America has, most of Western Europe has. A lot of the Indian subcontinent is starting to come up in that field as well, right? Now, if every industry on the ASX 300 or on the S&P 500 over the next you know, 100 years, if every industry just disappears, guess what happens? new industries come up in those 50 years and every uh, sorry uh, in those 100 years now every industry is not going to disappear tomorrow there's going to be a transition right yep. you know prior to 2007 there was no iphone there was no smartphones after that we have a whole industry of app development that didn't exist that's a new industry yeah have a look at the mobility of uh, uh, cars uh, i drive an electric car in a hundred years' time, it is very unlikely that internal combustion engines of any format for trucking, for cars, or possibly even railroads will exist, which means there's new industries that will need to come up in battery technology, software, electrification, and there's heaps of other industries that we haven't even discovered yet, particularly in the world of robotics and nanotechnology and health industries, which means by definition, your index has to be the best top 500 companies at any one time. And that's the beauty of it. If you think about it, uh, if you think about the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones, the majority of companies that existed 100 years on those indices don't exist today. And now it's dominated by companies that didn't exist just 40 years ago. So yes, I see the point of the whole passive indexing bubble, but I'm not particularly worried about it because I don't think everyone will be a passive investor. There'll always be active investors in the market. Yep, I, I agree with you there 100%, Dev. So I think a lot of people, especially when they start out in investing, they hear these terms ETF and index and so forth, and they get a little bit confused sometimes between the differences between those two. So ETFs can be a bucket of of anything really, but if your index is really if your ETF sorry is really reflecting an index, then it's exactly as you explained that it. it's going to be the top 200, 300, or 500 companies of a particular country or or a particular benchmark, and it's always going to be self-cleansing. It's always going to be that top 500, for example, a lot of companies. And you're exactly right. As the years go by, there will be new industries, new technologies and, and new innovations being created, which means that there will always be something that will replace the existing top companies. So very good breakdown there, Dev. So can, I, can, just, I just say, hmm. can I just say one thing, Sam and Jude, right? You mentioned about ETFs, right? ETFs didn't hmm. exist 
in the 80s, whereas index funds did, you know, unlisted managed funds. Which Correct. Index Correct. Funds but, but it was very so, hard, I guess, for people to access those at, at the time. But you know why? I mean, ETFs are essentially uh, the same as index funds, except you can trade them. Uh, mm, yes. uh, and you can trade them multiple times a day. And, and I think fundamentally, perhaps there's a bit of a conspiracy here is that, you know, some person said, oh, hang on, you can't trade index funds, which means, you know, you can't make money off those trades. So let's package it up. And literally what it is, it's just a structure. It's just a package. ETF is just a different way of saying an index fund, but they've just packaged it up in such a way that you can trade. But prior to that, there was no such thing as ETFs. It's mm, an entire true. thing that was made up in the 90s. I think it first uh, originated in Canada, in the Canadian markets, actually. And that's how it came about. But I, I'm not particularly worried about it. And I think you're right. Self-cleansing it is, and it will be. Mm. So a lot of investors, especially new investors, one of the big hurdles that they face is trying to select a brokerage platform. And we talked a little bit about this a bit earlier, but for you, Dev, what's your criteria in selecting a good brokerage platform? Is it all about the fees or are there other things that you also consider? Yeah, so it's not only about the fees. I mean, the irony behind me talking about this is that I don't actually, I mean, I, I buy index funds, not so much the ETF version of them, but I think in some uh, settings, buying ETFs is a lot cheaper anyway. Uh, but fees are important, but it should not be the only driving force behind selecting a good broker and you know uh, just for your listeners when we talk about brokers we talk about people like you know comsec or nab trade or self wealth etc or superhero or perler etc so I, I think there are three main things that you need to consider now uh, the first one is what is your needs are you going to be investing only in australia only in america only in emerging markets or you want the whole lot and this is, you know, the, this is what they call full-size brokers or, you know, you know, super brokers like Comsec, where you can pretty much buy and trade anything you like. Or if you just want Australian securities uh, and US securities, then you might want to, you know, try something like a superhero or self wealth. By the way, these are not recommendations. I'm just giving examples, right? So you need to, you know, you need to work out what your needs are. Now, the second thing is, of course, fees and commissions is really important. Uh, transparent fees is really important. Generally speaking, if your brokerage is, you know, greater than a percent of your trade, then you're just paying too much, which just means you're just trading too often. So build up your funds and then trade less often. You know, most Australian brokers are cheap. Uh, they are getting cheaper and most of them are flat fee. And I believe um, I was listening to a podcast with the CEO of Superhero and I think, you know, some of their um, fees are zero. So I think that's fantastic to have you know, low fees, but, you know, nothing's free in this world. So you need to read the fine print, which I'm sure you can find out online. And the third thing is this whole thing about, oh, is it chess sponsored or not? I was going to actually mention that Yeah, <laughs> when you uh, beat look, me to I, it. <laughs> I think it's good to have a chess sponsored broker, which effectively means that you theoretically, you know, own the assets and the assets are not owned by a custodian of that broker so for example vanguard is not chess sponsored but you know vanguard are pretty big and you know they're not going to fail and if they fail then i think their custodian i think is jp morgan which is uh, you know one of the largest banks in the world so there's always that sort of theoretical risk if you invest in uh, invest using brokerages which are not chess sponsored but i think asx are actually upgrading their chess system actually uh, have you guys heard about that or are you talking about like they're trying to do some sort of blockchain system, something like that? 
That's right. Yeah, I think the they're, they're actually upgrading their hardware and software from a Cobalt sort of language to Java and digital. I think they call it digital asset in a modeling language or something like that, which is really geeky because I, I think you guys are in the IT field, if I'm not mistaken, so you probably <laughs> understand a bit better than me. But essentially, it incorporates you know, being able to handle distributed ledger technology. So that's sort of directed at blockchain technology. So yeah, chess sponsorship, ideally, yes, I think that'd be the third one. But that really entirely depends on you know how reliable you think your broker would be and their custodian would be. But those are the three main things. So what your needs are, what the fees and commissions are, and how transparent it is, and whether they're chess sponsored or not. Fantastic. Mm. I think three good points and three good points to remember right while looking forward to your selecting your broker platform and i think you know just continuing on that there there was you know i think we we touched upon this earlier when we were talking about you know automating the entire flow in terms of your investing plan right and i think you speak about it quite often on your podcast as well that you follow a dollar cost averaging strategy when you really look into investments now i think this you know quite a common question which comes up you know regularly where they say that what if your timing in terms of your investments in your dca happens to be at the highest points in the market would that really impact your returns because say that you know you don't have the best of luck and i think usually what's in everyone's mind is you know you buy low and sell high that's how it is in in a trading terminology right but say for instance that you know obviously we are long term investors and we want to buy and hold for a long period of time but what if your scenario is that you always buy at the highest points in the market right would that impact your returns in the long run well yeah i mean i guess yes and no and and that depends on you know when you buy and how long term your investment is but if you're thinking long term like 20 plus years i don't think it impacts your returns very much at all it probably will improve your returns because let's face it dollar cost averaging is reality we don't all have huge amounts of lump sum money sitting around ready to be invested. Because if we did, then we weren't good investors in the first place. Uh, there's very few people like that radiologist that I spoke about that have a million dollars ready to go and just haven't done anything with it. So the reality is we just take a set percentage of our income and put it into the market. Now, if you chose the highest points at each time, but your investing time frame is short, then it's a problem. And when I say short, I'm really am talking about less than 20 years. I mean, I, for me, long term is, you know, not five, seven or 10 years, which is what traditional financial, you know, investors and financial media teaches you. I think long term is at least 20 years or plus. So if you're doing it for less than 20 years, yeah, I think there's a potential risk. But if you're doing it for more than 20 years, I think the risk is very, very low, very negligible. Because if you take any sort of 20 or even 30 year time frame, the market generally in capitalistic societies with a good social safety net and who are democracies and have freedoms, generally speaking, in those sort of financial markets, the market almost always goes up. It's very rare to have a 30-year period where there's not much growth. I mean, there probably has been in the past, but you know, moving forward, you know, you'd be pretty unlucky. Now, if you invested in January of 2020 mm-hmm. and you wanted your money in May, then you're mm-hmm. in trouble. Yeah. You know, that, that that's a problem. But certainly over the long term, it I don't think it matters. Now, just to clarify, the purist in me wants to clarify this for your listeners, and, and I'm not sure whether they understand what dollar cost averaging is. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that taking money 
from your pay packet every pay and putting it into investments every week or every fortnight. A lot of people think that's dollar cost averaging. That is the way that it's explained in the financial media. That's actually not correct. What dollar cost averaging means is that if you have $100,000 in your bank account, then you can dollar cost average the $100,000 over 10 months, $10,000 every month. But the reality is we don't have a hundred grand sitting around. Well, most Australians won't have a hundred grand sitting around in their bank account. So the real reality of dollar cost averaging is that we have incoming money in the form of wages and we take a set percentage and invest it. I thought I'd just clarify that because it's a subtle difference that is often not explained correctly in financial media. Hmm, that's really interesting, actually. There was a YouTube video I watched as well recently just about investing in the highest points in the market. And there was a number of studies that were actually done. And you're, you're exactly right. Like if your time frame is very long, the returns really are not going to be significant at all in terms of your overall returns. Actually, I think what they mentioned was your your returns surprisingly, and I don't know how this works exactly, will actually be higher when investing in the highest points in the market. I don't know how exactly that works out, but that was actually what they concluded at the end of their study. So this was done actually by JP Morgan and a few other large kind of organizations. So yeah, that's actually something very interesting. So Dev, I wanted just to talk to you further about index funds and just to take you back to when you were a young lad and you didn't understand anything. What steps did you take to actually educate yourself further on index funds? And then what made you or how did you come to the conclusion then that this was something that was right for you? Yeah, so I sort of looked at it in a very pragmatic and again, simplistic point of view. So I approached investing the same way as I approach my own life in terms of what I do and use in terms of products and services in my life every day. So let me give you an example. And the chances are that if I wake up in the morning and brush my teeth and take a shower and drive a car and go to work and plan a holiday, watch TV, eat food, et cetera, and use banks and pay bills and utilities, the chances are if I'm doing it, the majority of Australians are also doing the same thing. I'm not saying all of them, but the majority of Australians, I would like to think, brush their teeth at least twice a day and have a shower at least once a day, right? (laughs) Then it's a matter of looking at what companies I use during that process on an everyday life, such as, you know, eating food from Coles or Woolies or Aldi or, you know, using water and electricity and gas from utility companies and using products and services, you know, made by mining companies and using travel companies to go on holidays and, of course, using banks and other financial institutions in order to basically manage our personal finances. And then I thought, well, what investment that I can do has all of these incorporated in the one thing? And you'd have to say the index, you know, the ASX 300, which is what I invest in, basically has everything in terms of what I would possibly want to use in my own life. And uh, literally, I thought about it and it kind of clicked. And I went, well, that makes complete sense. I'll just buy the index. Now, retrospectively, When I did some research about it, it turns out that uh, index investing over the long term almost always beats active investing. 
So essentially, I thought, well, I'm a relatively lazy person. I, I want to focus on my career. I want to focus on being a good doctor and treat patients. My expertise is medicine. My expertise is not money. So I needed the easy way out. And essentially, you know, that's how I sort of approached the way that I would structure my finances. And, and I haven't really looked back ever since, really. That's interesting, definitely. I think uh, I think I like the thing what you mentioned there. Sometimes you know, you it's it's the simplicity that you you know it's 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 the best way forward, right? It 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 depends, as I said, in terms of every situation. But as you said, you have other things to focus on, your medicine, your career, your family, you know. And I think you would always look for avenues where it it you can manage your your money, but you know you don't really focus your whole and soul into it all at all points of time, right? And and for you, I think index works. And I think for majority of the people out there, I think it seems to be a good enough route, right? Until and unless you're really passionate about and, you know, really into the markets day in and day out, maybe. I think indexing would really suit the requirements for most of the people out there. When I explain it to, you know, doctors and nurses and allied health professionals and paramedics that I work with, and when I speak to them, uh, and I speak to a lot of doctors, you know, every, every day, every other day, they they contact me when I have a chat. When I explain it to them, it's almost as if they think, no, it can't be. It can't be that simple mm-hmm. because, you know, like I guess when you think about, you know, medicine and, you know, the human body and biology and anatomy and physiology, it's quite a complex sequence and structures that work together to produce an integrated function, right? I mean, for my ability to be able to talk and walk and do things, it's actually quite a complex system that humans are in order for that to happen. And of course, being a doctor, I sort of think, well, everything else has to be as complex. It can't be as simple as putting money into an index fund every week and just forgetting about it. And that's probably the most common response that I get because I do webinars all the time for doctors Mm-hmm. And my message is exactly the same. That is, we've got to pay yourself first. You've got to invest in something you understand and you've got to reinvest dividends. You've got to do it for the long term and you've got to automate it. It's as simple as that. And I think you're right, Jude, when you said for the vast majority of people, you just got to chuck money into an investment they understand, hopefully index funds, and that's all they need. If you like active investing, if you want to pick and choose what you want to do because you get a bit of a kick out of it, that's completely fine. But the majority of Australians don't need to pick and choose. Spot on, spot on there, spot on there. I think very, very important points. And and I think keeping in line with the, you know, simplicity method right out there, like I think, as you said, index investing is pretty simple in terms of, you know, the way you can follow it, understand it, and then, you know, invest your money into it. You know, I think off late, there have been an increase in, you know, super style investment products, like, you know, in terms of all-in-one investments, which are outside super, like how we just spoke about, the super discussion, right? That you put it into a super industry fund, which you know has its compositions, uh, investing into different markets. But you, as an individual, really, you know, obviously, you should know what your super funds investing in. But you know, you can def- definitely chuck in your money in that fund, and you know, takes care of itself. I think there there has been of late a super style investment products such as you know from Vanguard, like the VDHG, maybe for instance, or something from Beta Shares. Would you have considered these products as an option? earlier if they had been introduced earlier yeah look absolutely i'm all for keeping things as simple as possible i think the beta shares ones is is called dhhf if i'm not mistaken that's one of that's yeah that's one of their portfolio options yes yeah basically you put a thousand bucks in that and that that just spreads your money across everything from 
North American markets, Aussie markets, emerging markets, bonds, property, etc. Look, I think I think that's I think that's fantastic. I think Vanguard used to have something called life strategy funds when mm-hmm. I first started, which was like conservative, medium, and aggressive. I think that's now shut. I don't think you can get access to that, and I think that's sort of morphed into this VDHD, which okay. is you know high growth and growth and conservative, etc. It's pretty much exactly the same, really. Uh, I think it's good. Uh, I think if you want exposure globally in you know systematic way of you know thirty percent, thirty percent, thirty percent, and then ten percent of bonds or something like that, then something like VDHD might be quite appropriate. So yeah, so I, I'm actually seriously considering VDHD and uh, similar things in my portfolio. I mean, currently I don't have it, but once I sort of max it out in terms of what I'm trying to achieve, um, I think VDHD sounds really attractive. And there's always this online debate about oh, you know, they, they, they just pay too much distributions and they pay too much dividends and why pay tax and tax is bad and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and look, my answer to that is very simple. Don't let the tax tail wag the dog because you'll get burnt. Don't do things just to save on tax. Do things because you want to do things because you want to improve your investment IQ and improve your investment value. But yeah, VDHD sounds really good. And, and, and if people have access to that, I mean, can you imagine just putting money into that? And it's just, it's just fantastic to be able to keep it as simple as possible. I think it's great. Yeah, it's probably one of the simplest strategies out there. One very diversified kind of ETF. It is an ETF, basically. And just casting back to what you mentioned in your prior response about looking at things in your everyday life and, you know, how you use them and and how pretty much every Australian uses them. In Australia, there's still a lot of global companies out here. So a lot of people drive Toyotas, a lot of people use Samsung TVs, a lot of people use Apple computers. Why did you not consider global markets for investing? Yeah, look, I think there's there's an element of country bias. You know, I tend to understand the local markets perhaps a lot better than what I understand international markets. Perhaps that's a little bit of a flawed way of thinking. I mean, there's always going to be some country bias. I mean, most Americans, dare I say, would invest only in America. But having said that, that's 50% of the global economy. So I can understand that point of view. Yeah, look, I just feel comfortable. And, and I think Australian companies have international exposure. So technically, by investing in the ASX 300, I have some international exposure. And of course, I have international exposure in my super as well, because that's sort of more broadly diversified index as well within my super. The other thing I like about Australian investments is the whole sort of, you know, franking credits and and, and, and I plan to use that to my advantage in my retirement, hopefully, if it still exists. So I, I believe this whole double taxation thing does happen overseas and doesn't really happen here. And you're uh, right. So, so there's a few benefits of investing in Australian equities, and one of it is dividends and franking credits. But there is some international exposure. But you've got a valid point. I think there is a bit of a country risk that I'm taking. But I think you know I look for three things. You know, when investing, I think the first thing is democracy. Countries that have democratic regimes, or I shouldn't say regimes, but democratic governments, generally will outperform you know, uh, societies that are based on, you know, communism or dictatorial societies. So that's number one. The second thing is, you know, you got to have a system of capitalism. I think any system of finances, uh, if you compare it, capitalism has provided uh, the most 
social mobility and financial mobility of you know any other types of financial systems. So you've got to be a capitalistic society. But I think the third thing, which I think Australia has good balance of, although I do tend to worry moving forward, is an element of social safety net. I think we need to look after, you know, neighbours just like we look after our family. I think I think those three things, if you have it in an economy, it's unlikely the economy would falter in the long run. So I am betting on Australia. I think we will do well in the next 50 years. Fantastic. Fantastic. I think it's it's definitely a safe bet to have on, right? Because I think the outlook looks good. And, you know, I think and very important points as you raised, right? When you look in terms of your investments, you need to look at it from a bigger picture, the macro view. And I think, you know, your justification as to why you would focus on the Australian markets is pretty spot on. So thanks for that, Dev. Uh, continuing on those lines is, you know, uh, you know, one is obviously you look into country-specific investments like an index, but there's also, you know, the other side and the frenzy in terms of alternative investments like Bitcoin, for instance. Mm. Now, as part of, you know, your diversified portfolio, right, do you think that, you know, there, sh- there should be a place for something as speculative as Bitcoin as part of a portfolio? Or something like even gold to a certain extent, right? Sometimes when the markets crash, you'll see these gold prices going insanely high. So what's your take on, you know, having these alternative investments as part of your portfolio? Look, I think uh, in, in my humble view, I think an investment has to have two things. One is that it's got to grow in value over the long term. Uh, and the second thing is during that time, it has to produce an income. And I think if it only does one or the other, then it's not really an investment. Uh, it's kind of a speculation. So it's a bit like, you know, pr- probably not the right time to say this, uh, Jude, now that you've bought a house. But, but you know, if you, if you buy a house and you live in a house, that house is likely to grow value over the next, you know, 40, 50 years, which is great. But it doesn't give you an income because you're living in it. So technically, in my humble view, your own home is technically not an investment, right? So if, 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 you, if you have a look at Bitcoin and gold, it's kind of the same. Like I, I use the simple analogy that, you know, if you bury a million dollars worth of gold in your backyard and, you know, 40 years later, you dig it up, what do you find? Well, hopefully it's still there. It hasn't been stolen. And the second <laughs> thing is the gold doesn't produce more gold. It doesn't multiply. It doesn't give you any dividends. And essentially, you know, you dig it up and you go, wow, that looks great. And you take it out of the ground and you try and find a buyer who you hope will pay more for that gold than what you did 40 years earlier. Now, compare that to someone who has a business or has a farm that over that 40 years produces crops and actually serves society, has a function in society. I'm putting my bet on the person that has a business or has a farm as opposed to someone who's bought a lot of gold and buried it under the ground because you know, it's a whole greater fool theory, right? You need to find a greater fool to be able to buy that gold off you. Whereas in a farm or a business, uh, it actually serves society's functions. So I personally don't hold any crypto or gold. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I know people that uh, have made a lot of money. A lot of doctors have made a lot of money on crypto. And uh, certainly the blockchain technology is here to stay. Yep. But I don't know whether BTC would exist in the next 50 years. And I guess I want to be able to invest in things that exist in my lifetime and and beyond. And I think in 50 years' time, we will 
most likely have the ASX 300 still around. And that's sort of my take on it. The, the funny thing is, I, I mean, I live in Melbourne and I, I drive on the Eastern Freeway a lot. And, and there's this digital banner now. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen on the way to Nicholson Street. Uh, I think you guys are from Melbourne too. So you probably know yes. what I'm talking about. And there's a massive digital banner now that, that's got um, BTC Markets, I think it's called, or some sort of cryptocurrency exchange in it. And it live streams the uh, current uh, Bitcoin price. Uh, every time I every time I see that, I, I just sort of think to myself, you know, uh, that that is the ultimate speculation. You've got hundreds of thousands of cars driving past it every single day, looking up at that. And the average person, if they don't mm-hmm. know, particularly going to get sucked into, you know, trading BTC without knowing exactly what it is. Really valid point to make there, Dev. This concludes part B of episode nine, interview with Dev Raga from the Dev Raga Personal Finance Podcast. Stay tuned for part C.